0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Happy Watch Radio. This season, season five, we are looking at digital solutions in the circular economy. Today, we have been joined by Claire Rampin and Emily Rogers from Wreath. Wreath is on a mission to build the digital infrastructure required for businesses to shift to the circular economy. And Emily and Claire have been through quite a journey with Wreath over the past couple of years, both Barry and I know them personally, so it was nice to have them on the episode and hear about this journey in much more detail than I ever have before. But also to hear about their motivations and where they hope to go with this whole journey. It was so nice to hear kind of both the ups and the downs from the conversation we had, Barry.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was really interesting to have somebody in the podcast that we know or that we've worked with and to see some of the similarities to the conversations we've had throughout this season and also to hear, like you say, more detail and some of the reasons that I think Claire and Emily and Reith are really inspiring and the work that they're doing.
0: Yeah, I think There's a lot of things that have come up again in this episode that we hear time and time again over this season of collaboration and what it kind of feels like to be pioneering in this particular sector. And I think if anything comes across from our conversation with Claire and Emily, it's the determination that they both have. I mean, they weren't shy about telling us how it is. I really think that it just demonstrates how much energy and passion they have for this subject that they're giving it all they've got time and time again every step
1: of the way. Absolutely. I think there's so many threads I'd like to sort of for, for listeners to pick out. Like there's the startup journey of like the real challenges they talked about jumping off the cliff repeatedly. <laughs> there's the circular economy challenge where it's, they're pioneers in creating a whole new thought process around business or mindset. And then there's the journey which I personally find interesting of the actual software and the data and the tools and processes they use to actually implement their their goals. So I hope listeners enjoy that conversation and kind of be inspired a little bit about the opportunity for those of us in this sector of all different skill sets to be involved in. The solutions. I think I want to tie that back to something Emily you said very uh, right at the start in our first episode of the season, where we talked about the challenges and how difficult it all is. But within all that, there's still hope and there's still opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think I would definitely got that from Claire and Emily.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And so, without any further ado, let's meet Claire and Emily.
2: Hi,
3: I'm Emily. Hi, I'm Claire. We co-founded a software business called Reef. We build the digital infrastructure for circular systems. That essentially means we help businesses to adopt safe, compliant, scalable reuse systems. Reuse systems that are fit for the 21st century. And when we talk about reuse systems, we're looking at reusing things that have typically been single use and sent to landfill. So that might be packaging or PPE since COVID hit or
2: electronics. Electronics, exactly.
1: Awesome. And welcome to Happy Porch Radio.
2: Thank you. <laughs> We're glad to be here.
1: Let's go back a little bit and see where, if you can share a little bit about where the journey started, like how come you ended up where you are now, starting Wreath?
2: We ask ourselves that every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Claire and I met at university, and we've been kind of what I would call eco nerd. Not so much warrior, just super geeky about different ways that our daily kind of decisions impact the environment. So, at University Clare, implemented the first keep cup system there, which was what, what, a decade ago? Oh my god. And I had been working earlier to get plastic water bottles banned from campus, and we met through A love of the arts, but then really connected over kind of our environmental passion. And we both went into work, Claire went into work for Telefonica. I went to work for a couple of different startups. We both wanted to learn as much as we could about business and really kind of get a strong understanding of what it means to run a commercially viable company. But we found ourselves... Spending so much of our time still focused on that campaigning element around the environment and what our day to day choices kind of do to support our beliefs. And so then we kind of started an accidental letter writing campaign, effectively, in the form of emails to all the different like cosmetic brands that we had in our bathroom cabinets because we found it so silly and confusing that we had these fantastic face moisturizers that were vegan and ethically sourced, but they come in a single-use plastic bottle. And we were like, who is not connecting the dots? There must be a reason that no one is allowing us to reuse these. And, and, you know, this was around the time that I think the other shoe dropped on recycling, really, and that people really started to understand that such a small percentage of what they're trying to recycle is actually going where they think it is. So, yeah, we started a pretty industrious email campaign. (laughs) Just being quite annoying, I think, at emailing lots of brands saying, why aren't you doing reuse yet? Like This is something we really want. And that's when it clicked for us that we could use our brands to try to solve this problem because we got a lot of similar responses back from the brands.
3: Yeah, they were saying, first of all, that legislation means that it's really hard to reuse packaging safely and legally. So for example, it's something you probably don't notice, but actually... Most, if not all, packaged goods have a batch code stamped on them, and that's usually done with a laser ink printer. And that batch code connects the product that's in the packaging with the packaging itself, which means if there's ever a product recall that needs to happen, if something gets contaminated, businesses can recall that by using that batch code. The challenge there, obviously, is how do you reuse a piece of packaging if it has a, a unique code stamped on it that can only be used once? and is only relevant to that one batch of packaging or product, sorry. That was one of the issues that came back. And then the other problems that brands were claimed they were having was that their systems were built for a linear economy, not for a circular one. So for example, their inventory management systems could handle buying packaging, filling it, shipping it out, never seeing it again. They couldn't handle it coming back in, and how they were going to deal with that and forecast that and change all their other processes around that. And then the third problem was that this was a big change. This is a huge change that businesses need to make. And they were saying, well, how do we know that we're making the right decision if there's no data, there's no pre-existing data to call on? So, for example, you know how to make a perfectly optimized piece of packaging that will last once, and particularly industrial engineers know how to build products that last for a long time but no one really knows how many times a piece of packaging is going to be reused and therefore how to design for that and how robust to make that piece of packaging. Because if you make it too robust, it's a waste of resources. And if you make it too flimsy, the chances are it won't be used as many times as it could be. So there was this, it felt to us like data was really something that could connect the dots on all these problems. And that was where we began.
2: And we were excited about it because we bent our careers, Claire, using data to optimize businesses commercially and me using it to optimize for logistics and operations. So I think we were naturally quite drawn to this very empty space. And that's kind of, at that point, that's where we met you, Barry. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I was a catalyst for, for all the disaster since then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you definitely
3: move a lot out of it. When we well, met you, actually, Barry, we were, we were just fresh from finishing our Pilots and I use air quotes there, <laughs> where we were like trying to just even test the hypothesis of if reusable packaging was viable. There weren't so many options on the market at the time, so we were go- doing little pop up shops, going to offices, and selling these products, and then trying to track the return rate by using a QR code. And we hooked up this pretty ridiculously coded Excel, which was going to break after about <laughs> a thousand uses, but. Anyway, we were trying to test the whole end-to-end system. And that that was when we realized around the time we met you that actually there were enough of these other... Enough people were interested in this market to make a, software, a specialist software company viable. And actually, the problem was too big to tackle as two people, one company.
2: We couldn't do end-to-end. End. We didn't want to make the product and sell it and make the software that does the traceability and health and safety. So we focused on kind of where our expertise was, which was around data and making it useful.
0: So let me turn the tables on you, Barry. How do you fit into this story? (laughs) Asking you the questions now.
1: God, that's a complete shock out of the blue. (laughs) I am really interested in that story that Emily and Claire just shared. And I want to go back a few things to what you said as well. But to answer your question to me, well, we build software. So that's kind of when, when I met Emily and Claire only met once in person because 2020 has been so bizarre. But I guess really inspired by exactly what we just heard them talk about, the sort of trying to genuinely solve a problem and approaching it I really like the fact that you talked about that and you were laughing, Claire, there about the sort of doing pop up stores and trying to validate it. For me, that was one of the things that I, uh, that, that it's real. You know, it's not just sitting in theory thinking about something. It's going out and doing in the, to use startup parlance, doing things that don't scale, like, you know, hitting the ground, getting out of the building, all these things that, that you talk about in the startup world that's about trying to really understand the real world problems and validate it all. And then over time, getting more and more excited about the work and trying to help out with some of the software. I don't know if that, that's kind of where our relationship built up.
3: Yeah, Barry, you, I don't know if you remember this, but over Christmas, literally I think it was the 27th of December, and we were on a phone call co-bidding on a grant because the grant closed in about five days. And we, <laughs> we, we really wanted to get some money to be able to work with you properly. fortunately we won that grant and we were able to kick off the first tranche of work to build the prototype.
1: Yes, I do remember that. (laughs) So I wanted to step back before we go sort of into the next step. One part of this process that I'm always intrigued by is you were describing there having seen the problem and doing this email campaign and starting to understand the problem. But Then there is a mental shift, I think, between going there's a problem to I'm going to be the one to get out and try and get involved in the solution. Did that come very naturally to you both or is that… Uh, or how what was that ju- process like that journey from moving from there's a problem to we're going to try and help solve it
2: we had both gotten to points in our careers where i think we were f- it's not that the work we were doing wasn't engaging it's just that we were sitting there thinking is this what i want to be using my brain for like we were lucky enough to have really varied careers working with great people that were quite inspiring and it I think that really challenged me to say, actually, how am I spending my time right now? It's a little bit of an existential, scary question. And Claire, you'd always wanted to start your own business. Yeah, I think
3: that that, like Emily mentioned, I previously was using data to optimize revenue for businesses, i.e. advertising optimization kind of stuff. And I remember someone saying to me, it's a bit depressing that the best brains of 2000 to 2015 are spent on optimizing clicks and optimizing advertising efficacy. And I think that's quite true. And that really resonated with me. As Emily mentioned at the beginning, we spent a lot of time trying to solve environmental problems. And I always think of the quote, like, if not you, who? Not
1: now. When. If not now,
3: when? And like, I don't think we can sit around here waiting for leadership. I think it's really important if you see an opportunity and you have the drive and the capacity and the privilege to be able to take advantage of that opportunity, then the risk taker in me is like, why would you not? I appreciate, you know, that does take a certain amount of privilege in terms of education, in terms of network, in terms of self-belief, you know, those aren't things that, Everyone Everyone has has an abundance and to a certain extent, financial stability and the ability to save money before you take this kind of a leap um, is really critical. But one thing that Emily and I talk about a lot is how the first jumping off the cliff, the first time you jump off the cliff, that's the first step. So that's maybe it might be quitting your job or it might be deciding to commit every weekend from now to Christmas on this new idea. Whatever it is, you're spending time, you're spending money to do it. But you're continually having to jump off a cliff, like (laughs) in your mind. But it's just once, and then it's all smooth sailing from then. It's not. You have to continually reckon with yourself and take the next step. And every time you take the next step and jump off the next cliff, you're bringing more people with you, and that's really. (laughs) But in time, it's very. I don't know. It's incredibly reassuring. We look out for traction and the signals all the time, so we set ourselves milestones like if we haven't achieved this, then we're going to reconsider. You know, we're not just on this. Uh, yeah, we're not just looking at vanity metrics or we're not looking at, do we enjoy our jobs? It's like, no, are we actually having the impact that we want to have? And I think when we were doing the first iteration, which was these pop-up shops, on the one hand, it was interesting and we were learning and we were meeting people. But every time we did one, we got a re- it reiterated to us that it was not systemic change and we really wanted to have this. System- so then like, in January, we sat down and said, are we having the impact we want to have? Are we hitting the milestones we want to hit? And the answer is no. So then it was like, okay, pivot or leave. And we chose to pivot. It
0: was very easy. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> that truth bomb. Of, uh, you don't just have to jump off a cliff once you have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. But is there a point where it starts to get a bit easier? I mean, maybe you mentioned kind of seeing your impact and and making sure that you're having the kind of impact you want to have. Does that help with the jumping off the cliff? Honestly, not as much as you think it
2: would. (laughs) We look at each other and we're like, oh my God, another one. We have to do it again. The only reason I say not as much as you think it would is because when the decision comes down to you, you realize just how uncertain what you're doing is. It's like you really have to look at it with clarity and say, this is a risk. And as we get more traction, as we get bigger, like Claire said, you're taking more people with you. Like We have employees now who depend on this to work, but we still have to have the agility of being able to have the mindset of if this isn't working, we're going to walk away. And so I think almost the more momentum you gain and the more stakeholders you gain, it's harder to maintain that exit mentality. And I'm not saying that because we want to get, we want to walk away, but having that as an option I think keeps us from making bad decisions and keep us kind of pivoting and adjusting and iterating and not just getting complacent. Yeah. You have to stay as agile as you can. But to your point, Emily, it's very easy to fall into the
3: mindset of like, well, if we get this grant, then it'll all be up, you know, it'll all be easy from here. (laughs) And I think quite quickly you realize that you can never have enough accolades. You can never win enough prizes. You can never have Enough customers. Enough customers. You can never have enough in the eyes of your financial stakeholders or mm-hmm. impact. Yeah, or any of the above. <laughs> above. You know, this problem isn't gonna go away overnight and it's it's brick by brick kind of mentality that you need to have. And so setting your expectations that, you know, maybe we get this amazing grant, it's not gonna change our lives entirely. It's just another brick. Maybe it's three bricks instead of one. So you know? Like it's very you have to have this very
0: methodical approach. So I don't want to jump ahead here because there's a lot to talk about, but just because you mentioned moving brick by brick and you will never have enough impact, you will never reach enough people, what would it look like to feel like you've accomplished what you want to accomplish? What's the kind of end dream goal that Reese is aiming for?
2: When we pitch, we have a line that says, Imagine a world in which you never have to throw anything away again. Mm. And then I say, that's what we're building. <laughs> I don't laugh when I do it. <laughs> that's a like high level. And I, I think for us, you know, we do want to have a measure, a measurable impact in terms of diverting billions of items from landfill. But in many ways, it's kind of like every time we have to jump off a cliff, we're measuring it against that next milestone that we wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I think we could both walk away from this really happy that we've built and published an open data standard and we've started a lot of conversations and we've gotten a lot of brands thinking about their impact and really pushing them to analyze the cost of what they do that goes beyond kind of what they currently pay. Our next one is really working with a corporate global partner to get an implementation of this solution in life to really see, like really put the software through its paces in terms of working at scale and see how we can help them optimize this by putting that data that we're collecting to to good use and really prove its value. I think that's our next big one.
0: Yeah. Nice. Tell me a bit more about the software. We've talked around it and talked about the story, but tell me specifically about the open data standard and digital passport and everything behind that.
3: Sure. So our first use case was packaging. And the reason for that is because even if you look on an individual industry level, it's really depressing the amount of packaging that's produced and is produced as single use. So for example, it was 142 billion pieces of cosmetic packaging are produced every year. Given the percentage of products that are refilled at the moment, 99% plus of that will be single use and will likely go to landfill if it Unless it's recycled, which, given the recycling rates globally
2: nine percent nine
3: percent, the chances are the majority will be in landfill. That is an insane amount. Ugh. And that's good with markets. That's not even food and drink. So wow, it's very the packaged goods industry is very problematic in terms of its single use packaging consumption. So that's why we were focusing on that industry first. So the software we set out to solve some of the main problems that I mentioned. So. We wanted to accurately collect data. We wanted to store critical compliance data. And by that, we mean things like batch codes to enable product recalls and basically keep the consumer safe. And we wanted to also be able to use that data to help optimize the system that the company is operating. So... We set about building essentially a track and trace solution, which if you know much about the internet of things, track and trace has been, is a very fast growing market. It's essentially where you put a machine readable tracker, and that could be anything from like a very passive tracker, like a QR code to something more sophisticated in our case, because we're using, because we're talking about very relatively low value items that are high volume, we would use a passive tracker that's very cheap. So QR codes is a very good example. You put a passive tracker onto your packaging and then you link that to a unique ID in the wreath system. Then you're able to track everything, all the different steps that that piece of packaging goes through. So you can set that up in our system and it's completely configured to your system, your processes, and your business. So, for example, if you want to track when it's filled with a product, maybe when it goes out with the customer, maybe once it's come back and it's been cleaned. And you can attribute data to and certain fields of data to those different steps. So you can let the system know what we filled it with, what type of product it was. Let's say it was lavender shampoo, what batch of that product it was. And then you get this really nice digital ledger, which shows, exactly what's been in that piece of packaging. You're also capturing the information about when it was cleaned and you can ascribe data to that. So you might know that it's being cleaned 60 degrees Celsius in a certain cleaning process. And you can start to build up an idea of the reuse rate. So how many times it's gone round and round your system. So that's at the very very core. We have a lot of exciting... Yeah, we're building a lot of exciting features in the next few months, in the next year. And the vision that we have is really to build on those data processing capabilities and be able to feed back more information to the user so that they can better optimize their system.
1: The other thing you mentioned was the open data standard. And before jumping into that, I thought it would be worth just quickly getting your thoughts on, I guess, collaboration generally. One of the themes that I've seen recently quite often in circular economy discussions is, the, and you've touched on it as well, like change isn't, as an individual, it needs to be systemic. It needs to be, you know, in order to solve these problems, there's some of them are so big that it's going to take more than one piece to make those changes. So I'm interested in, maybe you can just take a little bit more, or explain a little bit more of what you meant by systemic and maybe how the open data standard that you mentioned connects to that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. When we say systemic, we're talking about building infrastructure. So We talk a lot about how the world today has been designed and optimized for this like throwaway culture of I can take something, make something out of it, use it, and then get rid of it. Quote, unquote, get rid of it because it doesn't go anywhere, really. It just moves out of your sphere. So we wanted to put the kind of technology backbone in place for how the world is going to cope with that getting rid of stage going away properly and it coming back in a loop. And we're big believers in collaboration, and we think that there are ways that we can share data that don't infringe upon companies' USPs or their kind of company moat, which is why we started looking at this idea of open data. Because when when you're going to start something new and you're going to trailblaze effectively, you could make a lot of costly mistakes in terms of time and money but also in terms of the waste that you produce accidentally by going down the wrong path or a path that's not as fruitful. And what we don't want to see is all the different big kind of FMCGs take on reuse in a different way and not learn from each other because we just see it as it's going to happen. It is going to happen. It's going to become part of our normal everyday, And we want to do it smart and we want to, do it well quickly because time pressure is real here also the
3: other thing to bear in mind is just how much the government legislation particularly in the uk is changing so there's this thing called extended producer responsibility and that's essentially for every ton of packaging you put on the market so all of your shampoo bottles filled every ton of that packaging you have to offset that with essentially like a tax and that's changing significantly, and they're bringing what's called a plastic tax to try and reduce the amount of single waste plastic that's put on the market. So we're seeing this greater focus on individual producer responsibility and their responsibility to pay the true cost of their packaging rather than just the cost of it at man- point of manufacture. So this is an excellent opportunity to look at what environmental protection agencies need in order to monitor and incentivize the uptake of reusable packaging because you can see there's a lot of fraud issues in the waste industry and you can foresee there being a lot of issues with people claiming the packaging's being reused when it's not actually so this is a digital infrastructure to prevent that and to try and improve the credibility around reuse uh, we see is absolutely vital
2: you have to measure your actual impact mm. like some there are so many arguments right now that reuse isn't a good option mm. but that's I mean, we get frustrated by that argument because no one's properly measured it yet. And if you actually measured the cost of single use, not just its creation and manufacture, but the cost of disposing it and how you quantify that in terms of its impact on the environment, single use is hugely expensive. So we want to put some hard numbers down. (laughs) There's also been so
3: little optimization. I often use the example of when the internet first arrived, (laughs) when people first created e-commerce websites. The likelihood that their checkout flows were optimized, that people were really improving systematically their conversion rates was very, very low. And that's a a whole industry and discipline that's emerged over the last 15 years. So we have to see these new circular systems, reuse systems as a very similar challenge. It's something that's new. It's not going to be perfect from day one, but we've got this great opportunity to capture data on it and use that to help us optimize
0: there's a lot there. I've got so many questions. <laughs> I'm going to start with questions about your idea of creating a reuse ecosystem, which is a, a phrase you've used and used in your report about the research that you've been doing. This is actually something that's come up a, a few times in the series that we've done on this podcast. This idea of the organizations we're talking to just kind of being one piece of a much bigger puzzle in terms of creating a whole as you say infrastructure around a transition towards the circular economy i wonder if you can kind of describe a little bit what the rest of the of this ecosystem might look like or just kind of like in a thought experiment imagination kind of way in an ideal world what does that look like and then second part of that question which i suppose is kind of related As we're creating a a collaborative infrastructure, where does the buck stop on this?
2: Who's responsible for maintaining it?
0: Maintaining it or making sure that everything works and making sure that this is actually something that people are utilizing and that it can be real.
3: To your point about the ecosystem, this is, as you can imagine, this touches so many different spheres. So many different types of organizations. So to start with the ones that we interviewed for the open data standard, because we essentially did an ecosystem map where we looked at all the people that might be interested in this and what they might want to contribute to a standard and what they might want to get from a standard. And there's the obvious ones. There's the brands that produce the packaging. There's the retailers that sell it. There's the environmental protection agencies who monitor and ensure compliance of both of those bodies or types of companies. There's the health and safety trading standards compliance. So they're the ones that are looking out for consumer health and safety, making sure that things are being packaged correctly and that companies can operate a product recall if something goes wrong. There's the customers themselves who might have different thoughts on reusable packaging and whether or not they're comfortable using it or able to use it. Then there's the waste management companies, the ones who currently pick up our recycling or our waste. They're obviously not so, at the moment, the companies that are doing reuse are doing it on their own. So they're the ones that are, they're either relying on the customer to bring the packaging back to the store, or they're picking it up on their behalf. But we have to look forward to a world where this is integrated, that reuse becomes more mainstream. And then there's the councils that often operate those waste management contracts. And they're the ones that are the kind of the point of contact. So there's all these different players in the ecosystem. And we need to think through how everyone's going to continue playing their role as they do for single use waste or single use recycling, but adding in reuse as a third stream.
0: Nice. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's actually really encouraging to hear you talk about all of these different peoples and organizations and levels of involvement in this system because to a certain extent, it's always two-sided because it is a bit scary thinking about just quite how much change needs to happen in order to reach a truly kind of circular ecosystem. But on the other hand, when we're thinking about opportunities for people to get involved and you know space for people to be creative and productive, there's so much opportunity there. And that's really encouraging.
3: Exactly. I was listening to the other podcast episode you guys did when you interviewed, I think it was Stephen from Loop, and you were talking about, he was talking about specialities and how they don't see themselves, Loop doesn't see themselves as an e-commerce company or TerraCycle, their parent, parent mm-hmm. doesn't see themselves as an e-commerce company. And I think that was a really great point that they were doing their best because they were very well placed. They recognized that they were well placed to trial this. But I think it's really important to recognize that this new, entirely new world will require so many different players and actors. And it's like we're building the equivalent of the single use economy, but in parallel. And it requires very different processes and very different suppliers and very different types of roles. And so, yeah, it's a huge opportunity as well.
0: And at this stage, before this, you know, we're not at the point where we have this infrastructure in place. This is very much in some ways, the first steps of the transition to a circular economy. Does it ever feel a bit like, (laughs) this is a scary question, I'm I'm warning you now, I apologize. (laughs) Does it ever feel a bit like the buck stops with you because you're the pioneers in this arena?
2: We don't underestimate how hard it is. I feel like we use such a random mix of analogies of like, we're in the middle of the ocean on this boat, we don't know where we're going. (laughs) We the mountain and there's no path or we're driving off road. I feel like we literally use all of them. Every kind of exploratory analogy. I think also for us, we're used to managing projects and kind of being a central point of contact within businesses. So we do end up taking on a lot of coordination and we encourage momentum. But I think what we've had to learn, especially in the last six months, is that if a business isn't ready to do reuse, there's nothing that we can say or do that's going to get them there. We find the best collaboration and energy with businesses that share this idea of the future and want to make it happen. And I think right now what we have focused on is really just getting case studies to show the value that reuse can bring to business because right now a lot of the big guys just see cost and
3: the value that wreath can bring to reuse
2: exactly i mean
3: i think we would feel a lot more alone like i don't think we could have done this 10 years ago five years ago even two years ago i think we would have been really struggling and because i i really want to give a shout out to all of the support that is out there for sustainability businesses and on the whole, but specifically around resource efficiency, circular economy, and plastic reduction. It's amazing. And we have been recipients of those types of grants. We've been beneficiaries of this title change that we're seeing in public consciousness and government's consciousness around this issue. And I think there, you know, that's where luck comes into it. Also, timing comes into it. It's really important to emphasize that.
1: Just to switch gears a little bit for the last few minutes we have of this conversation, one of the reasons for this podcast season is to talk about, I guess, the role of digital software creative sector, verticals, business, whatever we want, however it's seen. And so I'm interested in Well, basically, it's not like you you have all this experience and this knowledge that you're bringing to this role, but it's not like you had built software before. Did you see that as a challenge? Uh, Or why did you end up with, okay, it needs to be software and, you know, and it's going to be this kind of thing. And then how easy was it to move from that to all the great work you're doing now?
2: We both were very comfortable working with digital products. I think that was a a useful background for us to have because although we can't code it ourselves, we kind of understand roughly what we need to consider when we're thinking about designing it and setting it up. But we didn't set out to build a software company. We really were very open to the problem. And we were just trying to find the best solution to that. And we're just so aware of kind of the world's addiction to data now. It's not that data gives you a guarantee about your, the decision that you make based on it, but it it gives us comfort and it, it gives us a guide and it's it's something real to pin your decisions to. And what we just kept hearing over and over again is like from these businesses, where do I start? Like I don't even know what material to make my reusable bottle out of. We have to start somewhere. Like we have to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're going to start collecting information on it. It's going to take a little while for it to become statistically significant, but if we don't start collecting, it's going to take even longer. The other thing we did was we looked at the more macro environment,
3: so things like the European data their strategy, the European data strategy, and what they were projecting around the use of digital passports, for example, which is essentially what our solution is, and its role in the circular economy. So we, I suppose, saw the writing on the wall at sort of very high level, strategic government slash you know global level. And then also we, just, we built a prototype using Excel. <laughs> so, you know, when we came to you, Barry, it wasn't like we were like, we have no idea what we're doing. Can you do, build this for us? It was like, no, we've built out a solution that has user journeys. We've thought through them all. They might not be perfect. They definitely weren't. But can you help us refine this and turn this into a more robust product rather than it being like, here's a problem. Can you solve it using <laughs> software? You know, we had a really clear idea of what the software was going to do to solve that problem. And I think that was-
1: yeah, because you put the problem first. That was that's the that was really struck out what you said there, Emily. And unfortunately I I as usual I could keep talking for ages, but especially about this where I'm sort of connected and really interested in the work you're doing. But we're running out of time. <laughs> so I wanted to finish off with a quick question, but before that just to do to reiterate something I've been trying to say in a couple of episodes, recent episodes. The reason for this season is about sharing the sort of amazing work that people like Reith are doing. And I guess to kind of demonstrate the opportunity or the need for people who work in software, in creative, thinking about the amazing team that Claire and Emily are building, product management, design, UX, in terms of individual opportunities, but also as businesses that provide services. I think there's a huge opportunity for us as a sector to be part of this journey by helping the people who are actually, you know, where the rubber hits the road, like So just to finish this off, Emily and Claire, two quick questions. One, you've talked a little bit about the vision or the future of, I guess, the sort of the dream for the future, but what are the immediate next steps for Wreath? Where are you going next? And then for people who want to find out more about that journey and more about the work you're doing, where should they go?
2: Great question. (laughs) Claire and I just looked at each other like, what are we doing next? (laughs) We hear and we see that businesses, especially the larger ones, want to try reuse. They want to put their toe in the water. And Innovate UK as a government funding body have a a great opportunity, a few coming up this year that we're building consortiums for, so teams for to tackle and bid for that funding to not only de-risk the project, but also kind of... I think there's something about the Innovate projects that make you really think through the concrete steps that come next. So they're a great kind of discipline to put yourselves through. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of our next big thing over the next quarter.
3: Yeah. And we're focusing on packaging for those, but we didn't really talk about it much. But one of the things that we did do after COVID hit was we won a grant from Innovate UK to apply our system to personal protective equipment. So working quite closely with the NHS, we designed a system that could work for reusable masks. Aprons, that kind of thing, in hospital or medical environments, and so we're releasing that pilot next week, which is really exciting. We're not too sure, you know, the the pandemic has been a surprise to us all. We have no idea how it's going to shake out. We have no idea what the world's going to look like when it's quote unquote over. But that has been a fan- fascinating project and really shone a, a light on an industry that was very reliant on single use and therefore very vulnerable to dis- disruption of supply chain, as we saw earlier in the year. Our focus is very much on packaging, but with these sort of um, other, opportunities. other opportunities to demonstrate where circular systems can be run safely in a compliant way and digitally at, at their core.
2: Um, yeah. And we are at Wreath ID. So if you have questions for us, it's Claire at Wreath ID and Emily at Wreath ID. And
3: you can follow us on LinkedIn at Wreath Dot id and on twitter at Id.
1: awesome thank you so much we'll share all those links as usual on happy radio.com thank you so much emily and claire for coming and joining and sharing all about wreath
2: thanks so much for having us and barry you know this but we absolutely love working with you and happy porch it's been the best partnership we could have asked for yes
1: awesome thank you so much that's the perfect way for us to finish
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you You can find notes and links from this episode, plus a full transcript at happyporchradio.com. If you are enjoying the show, please take a moment to give us a positive review on your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening to Happy Porch Radio.